Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. On the show this week, BP breaks off talks with its Russian partners in TNKBP, ahead of the company's annual meeting tomorrow. There is now a serious question mark over how long TNKBP can continue in its current form. And I would have thought that it's far more likely that BP will buy the oligarchs out of TNKBP than that the oligarchs will buy BP out. A potential merger between mining company Extrata and commodities giant Glencore. It's hard for people to get a read on what they think about the idea of of Glencore buying any large company, including Extrata, because there's really no precedent for this. It would create a new paradigm in the resources sector. There's simply nothing else like Glencore in the market. And Iraq raises its oil output to the highest level for almost a decade. It's highly likely that at some point in the next five years, Iraq will overtake Iran and become the second biggest producer in OPEC, which will have a very significant impact certainly on the balance of power within OPEC, and also on the oil market as a whole, because there'll be an extra million barrels a day or so from the present level available to the market. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. Let's start this week's show with BP and its desperate attempt in recent days to salvage its alliance with Russia's Rosneft. The deadline for reaching a deal is tomorrow, which also happens to be the day of BP's annual meeting. Now, joining me in the studio to discuss what we might expect tomorrow is FT Lex writer Vincent Boland. Thanks for joining us. Before we start, let's just recap what's happened. The FT's just put a story up on its website, um, breaking the news that BP's broken off talks with its Russian partners in TNKBP. From what we've been told, the Russians were simply demanding too high a price for their exit from TNKBP. And now that obviously also puts into very uh, grave doubt BP's alliance with Rosneft which we don't think is going to happen tomorrow. What do you make of events? I'm not entirely surprised because both BP and AAR, the consortium that has the oligarchs and Mikhail Friedman um, in it, they each own 50% of TNKBP. Each side has been ferociously fighting its corner over this BP tie-up with Rosneft. I think the problem for Bob Dudley, the BP chief executive, has been that he has not really convinced investors that his new Russia strategy is going to create value. And his new Russia strategy has been to get close to Rosneft and to gradually distance himself from Friedman and the other oligarchs who own the 50% of TNKBP. And I think that Friedman and his fellow oligarchs have been able to exploit that, if you like, and set up this ferocious opposition to the deal and gone to court and done everything they can to throw it off track. I mean, just to sort of argue Dudley's case, first of all, I mean, I guess it does make sense to cozy up to Rosneft. You know, they're 70% owned by the the Russian government. They do have big acreage in the, in the Arctic, which holds lots of reserves. So it does actually make sense, doesn't it, as a sort of long-term strategy, you should cozy up to the government, you have the Arctic, and try and get away from these partners of yours that have been causing you grief for the past few years and who are also very litigious. So it makes sense. Is Is it also maybe... Even if the strategy or the aim was right, he's messed up on the execution of it, or he's he's kind of called the bluff and his bluff has been called. Yes, I, I don't doubt the strategy. I think the strategy probably is 
a sound one in the looking at the very long term. I think his handling of it has been clumsy, and I'm surprised that he allowed Friedman the opportunity to do what Friedman has just done, which is to screw up the deal between BP and Rosneft. And that, I think, just calls into question the strategy itself, really. And, and I think that he has to somehow overcome this. And I think shareholders are certain to pin him down on this tomorrow. Is it fair to say that maybe he should have tried to sort out TNKBP's future before trying to team up with Rosneft? Yes, I would have thought so. I think that TNKBP is a huge part of BP. It's like 25% of BP's total production. It's their entire presence in Russia, really. And Russia is where a lot of the, a lot of the future oil supplies will be coming from. So I think probably he should have struck a deal with the oligarchs first, probably to buy them out or to set a timetable for an initial public offering of TNKPP, which I think both sides have sought in the past but were sort of put off by market turmoil, etc. But it does surprise me that that was not done at least at the same time as the alliance with BP, if not even before it. And, and what do you think now the future of TNKBP? I mean, they have had rows before and, and, and they've always managed to get the alliance back on track, presumably because it is such a lucrative joint venture for both sides. Yes, it's very lucrative. That's why it's so successful and also why it's so dysfunctional. Again, I think that there's now a serious question mark over how long TNKBP can continue in its current form. And I would have thought that it's far more likely that BP will buy the oligarchs out of TNKBP than that the oligarchs will buy BP out. But whether BP can do so by itself or whether it would do so with Rosneft or what any kind of timetable for it might be is now up in the air simply because there's now such disagreement in the board of TNKBP. And one wonders whether you know it's going to be able to function really for the next few months until they, until they try and sort it out. Just casting ahead at, at tomorrow's AGM, obviously forgetting even about Rosneft it is a big day for Dudley anyway because it's his first AGM as chief executive of BP. It comes again six days before the anniversary of the Macondo oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. A lot of sort of pressure points for him. Yes, absolutely. And what was going to be, I, I suspect, planned as a very cathartic moment for BP after the disaster in the Gulf of Mexico last year. This is the AGM. It's the first sort of opportunity for the company as a sort of corporate body to appear in public and to do a sort of Japanese-style apology, if you like, in front of the world. And so I think that that probably will still go ahead. And I'm sure that the chairman, Karl Henrik Farnberg, will want to keep proceedings very much focused on 2010, perhaps even update shareholders on where exactly BP stands from a financial perspective on the cost of the tragedy. But it's also likely to be slightly overshadowed by the latest developments in Russia. Thanks very much. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Thank you. Let's move to the mining industry and the upcoming float of Glencore, the commodities broker, and a potential merger with Miner Extrata. Uh, now, joining me in the studio is the FT mining correspondent, William McNamara. Well, we've been waiting for the Glencore announcement for, for some months and, and, and finally might be getting it as early as tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah, sure. It, it could come as early as Wednesday evening, Thursday morning. So any hour now. It'll be the biggest float on the London market for several years. But from a mining perspective, there is a bit of speculation that Glencore might buy the rest of Extrata that it doesn't own. It owns, what, 34% at the moment? 34%. Yeah, and, and that's the, the key number and all the speculation. The idea of a merger between the two companies remains speculation, but there's a couple important facts, um, one being that Glencore is clearly coming into this IPO, very confident, guns blazing, this $11 billion will give us acquisition currency. We want to bulk up. We want to um, have cash to pursue opportunities that, as a private partnership, we couldn't before. These are all points that Ivan Glasenberg, the chief executive, has made. 
what's Extrata been saying about this? Have they said anything publicly at all? I mean, if you're McDavis and you've built up Extrata over the years, did, do you want your company suddenly taken out by your biggest shareholder? They haven't really said much recently. They've made clear that they're not going to be proactive about this and that, I guess, silence is its own strategy. As early as a year ago, McDavis acknowledged that you know he could see the case for combining the two companies. But ever since then, he hasn't really come close to really revealing his hand. Just one final question. What are the other miners thinking? What are they sort of saying privately about the Glencore float? I mean, they, are they worried about this giant new kid on the block arriving with lots of cash to spend? I think people are taking a wait-and-see approach so far. This isn't the first time that kind of extremely confident, tough executive has said, we're taking my private company public and we're going to buy up the, the universe. Glencore will have a ton of cash to do it. But in part, it's hard for people to get a read on what they think about the idea of of Glencore buying any large company, including Extrata, because there's really no precedent for this. It would create a new paradigm in the resources sector. There's simply nothing else like Glencore in the market. And the idea of it taking out, forget Extrata, you know, Anglo-American, Rio Tinto, the idea of such a huge hard mining operation combining with such a huge trading operation would create something that's so unique that even the most intelligent commentators have a hard time really deciding what the business case is for it and how likely it is to happen. Thanks very much. Let's move to our final topic for today, Iraq and its increased oil output to its highest level for almost a decade. Joining me in the studio to tell us more is FT Energy correspondent David Blair. You've been looking at the numbers recently, and how do they compare with levels that we saw pre-invasion? I know it depends on which kind of invasion you're talking about, but how do they compare? Well, the essential figure is that Iraq is now producing more oil than at any time since November 2001. So it's the highest level of output for very nearly 10 years, and they're back up to a level which they last achieved about 18 months before the US-UK invasion of 2003. However, to place that in context, if you go back to 1990, pre-Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and pre-the era of war and sanctions, they were at 3.5 million barrels a day. And according to the IEA's latest figures, last month they were on 2.69 million barrels a day. So there's still a big gap. They're still well below they were 20 years ago. Obviously, they've had a a few bidding rounds over the years. They've got BP working on the Romela field and other of the big IOCs. Is that jump in production? Is that mainly because of these recent bidding rounds? There's certainly a link. The essential numbers are that last month, Iraq produced 2.69 million barrels of oil a day, according to the IEA. In August last year, they were producing 2.32 million barrels a day. So it's an increase of 370,000 million barrels a day, or about 15%. So it's, it's a considerable increase. It's not enormous, but it is considerable. And perhaps more interestingly, the IEA's assessment of Iraq's sustainable production capacity, which is defined as the level of output they could reach in 30 days and then sustain for 90 days, has gone up over the same period from 2.5 million barrels per day to 2.75 million barrels per day. So that suggests that there's a structural improvement in the condition of Iraq's fields, and that must be linked to the fact that the biggest companies in the world are now engaged in redeveloping them. You were recently at a conference in Paris where Sharistani, the Iraqi oil minister, was speaking. They've recently had some very high ambitions for their output. Have they scaled up those ambitions or are we now more confident that they might meet those targets? 
Mr. Sharistani tends to mention different figures almost every time he speaks in public. The one consistent thread is that no one I've spoken to believes any of his numbers. His latest target is 11 million barrels a day of production by 2020. Occasionally, he says 12 million barrels a day by 2017, but now he's on 11 million by 2020. It doesn't really matter because no one believes that's achievable. But they're clearly on an upward trajectory. And the IEA's view is that by around 2015, they'll be able to produce about 3.7, 3.8 million barrels a day. That number's significant because that is Iran's present level of output. And Iran is very firmly on a downward trajectory when it comes to production capacity. So it's highly likely that at some point in the next five years, Iraq will overtake Iran and become the second biggest producer in OPEC, which will have a very significant impact, certainly on the balance of power within OPEC and also on the oil market as a whole, because there'll be an extra million barrels a day or so from the present level available to the market. Is it fair to say that getting to this level is sort of the easy bit? The big question is is how sustainable is it over the longer term and how sustainable is that particular rate of increase? And what are people saying about that? Yes, the IEA's view is that the present level of production is sustainable. So the increase that we've seen in the last six months will not simply be a blip. And they believe that it's perfectly realistic for Iraq to add another million barrels a day of production capacity in the next four to five years. It's also certainly true that a lot of the recent increase that we've seen is simply because the oil fields have been improved from a very low level. The low-hanging fruit, as it were, has been picked. But the fact that production capacity has grown by a quarter of a million barrels a day suggests that it isn't simply that the low-hanging fruit has fallen to the ground. It suggests there has been a structural improvement. But caution always, they're well below where they were 20 years ago before the era of war and sanctions. Security in Iraq has improved very substantially in the last few years, but it's very fragile. The political situation in Iraq is exceptionally fragile, so it could all go wrong. But at the moment, they're on a pretty firmly upwardly climbing trajectory. And then just, just two final quick questions. One, has, that, has the improvement in Iraq made any difference on prices? And then just a quick thing on the figures that came out from the IEA's monthly report yesterday, looking at there being a, an impact on demand around the world for oil. On, uh, on whether Iraq's additional output has had an impact on prices, well, their increase in oil output has coincided with a very substantial rise in oil prices. So it clearly hasn't been enough to cool the market. Arguably, prices would have been even higher if that increase hadn't taken place. So it probably has had an impact in terms of holding down the rate at which the oil price has risen. Secondly, when it comes to demand, the general picture remains as before. OECD countries have essentially flat oil demand. Non-OECD countries continue to have very substantial rises in their oil demand, although the increase that's taking place is lower. So, for example, in January, Chinese oil demand had risen by about 13% over the course of the previous 12 months. The latest figure for March is that it was about 9%. So the rate of increase has fallen, but the vehicle is still accelerating. So whether any of that will be enough to have a structural impact on the functioning of the oil market and on prices remains to be seen. More data will be needed. And if present prices persist, it will take several more months before we can answer that question definitively, probably. Okay, thanks very much. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank David Blair, William McNamara and Vincent Boland. Energy Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.